When I was in seminary, one of my professors decided to get a little experimental. He divided us into groups and invited us to explore the teachings of Jesus through hands-on encounters with Jesus' metaphors and parables. And our, our group, taking a page from the Eucharist, actually decided to study the ancient arts of bread making and wine making. The bread part was easy. We made an appointment at the Great Harvest Bread Company facility in Cary, North Carolina at 3 o'clock in the morning in the butt crack of dawn to watch and ask questions and participate in the making of their daily bread. But for the winemaking, we knew we would have to get out of the city to experience the process in its full glory, right? So we set out on a day trip to Yadkin Valley, where we made a day-long appointment at a local winery. If you know anything about North Carolina wines, you'll know their wineries are a bit hit or miss. Mostly miss. Sorry, North Carolina. (laughs) In the first 30 minutes or so, we discovered that this particular winery didn't actually make any wine from grapes at all. They did have a long patch of vines right as as you entered by the sign at the edge of the property that read, We Make Wine, but all their wine was made from mangoes and blackberries and stuff like that. Now, some of you might like wine made from mangoes and blackberries. I will just tell you that I am not one of those folks. There was one wine on the list that gave me some hope. It said, with hints of Merlot. I'm like, oh, finally, a normal wine, one I can get behind. And then the guy serving the wine, who for some reason refused to wear shoes because, you know, he had been so busy crushing the grapes with his feet, said oh, I just wrote that in there for all those poor saps that like all that fancy wine. <laughs> fancy. I, I, I literally don't need fancy. I seriously don't. I'll, I'll take some grapes. That's all I want. Needless to say, we didn't learn anything about winemaking. However, this particular winery also included an apple orchard. And so instead, we spent loads of time over a weekend learning about apples. Jesus has nothing to say about apples. But one of the things that was really striking to me about the whole apple growing thing was that all of their trees had different kinds of apples on them. Perhaps you're like me and assume that all apples come from Wegmans. I had no reason to know that one apple tree doesn't have to grow just one type of apples. Did you know that? I learned about their process called grafting. They'd cut a little notch in the tree, just the right place, and they'd take a small branch or a bud from a variety of apples that that they'd like to grow and insert it into the tree in just a particular way. And they would wrap it together. They would bind it like you would put a cast on a broken arm. And then following the following spring, when the tree blooms, if everything was done right, that branch would bloom with a different type, a different variety of apple than would be on the other branches of the tree. Okay, winery, your wine sucks. In fact, it's not really wine at all, but your apple thing, it's pretty cool. (laughs) Last year, I was reminded of this process while watching a news segment about this. You know how you don't ever know about something until you are introduced to it multiple times in a row, weirdly? Last year, I was reminded of this process when I saw this man on the news, Van Aken, 
who had grafted different kinds of fruit, not just apples or multiple kinds of the same fruit, but completely different kinds of fruit into one tree. And he called it the tree of 40 fruit. During most of the year, it looks like a completely normal tree. But in the spring, during blossoming season, the tree reveals like this stunning patchwork of pink and red and white and purple blossoms, which in turn become an array of fruits, plums, peaches, apricots, nectarines, cherries, even almonds during the summer. I watched a brief video of Van describing how the almonds didn't really pan out like the rest of the fruit did, and so it ended up turning into the tree of 39 fruits, but still, like, that's super impressive, right? As little as Jesus ever discussed apples, Paul in Romans, not just in Romans, but many other places too, actually talks a whole lot about this grafting. Grafting becomes a key metaphor for Paul. In Romans, as you have perhaps heard me say over and over again this summer, Paul is writing to the two halves of the church um, in the early church that are fighting with one another. There's the Jewish half. The Jewish people have been following God. They're, They're God's people. They're God's tribe. They've been God's tribe for centuries, for generations upon generations. But as this movement of Christ followers begins to take shape, as they become actually known as being Christians, there are also these people who are not Jewish. They're Gentiles who are learning to follow this way of Jesus too. And if we're all following Jesus, we're all one body together, yet each of these two groups of people think that their way to follow Jesus is the right way, the preferred way, the faithful way. And so Paul tries to break down this dividing wall that exists between the two of them by talking about salvation in terms of grafting. In Romans 11, Paul says, if some of the branches, this is the Jewish people, if some of the branches have been metaphorically broken off, let's say they've broken off from the tree, the tree being Christ, you, the Gentiles, this wild olive shoot that were not originally a part of the tree of salvation, have been grafted into their place to share in the rich fruit of the olive tree too. He uses this grafting metaphor Olives, not apples, of course, but he uses this to explain the scope of salvation, the scope of reconciliation. Here we have this tree. It's a Jewish tree. It's got a big trunk. It's giving all the branches life. The trunk is God, and you've got all these Jewish people, all these branches of this big, gnarled, old, ancient, delicious, and wonderful olive tree. And then there's, and then there's the Gentile people. That's us that wild olive shoot who have been grafted on. We Gentiles don't look like the rest of these people. We don't act like them. We don't live like the rest of these people. And yet we are every bit a part of this tree too. This is one of the metaphors that Paul uses to do the thing that I think he is attempting to do more than anything else in Romans. And that is to invite these two groups of people into a lifestyle of reconciliation with one another but not just to stay there. Paul is inviting them into a lifestyle of reconciliation with all the world, to be Christians without being jerks. In the first half of Romans, Romans, let's say, 1 through 11, 
we heard Paul outline what the scope of salvation, that scope of reconciliation looks like. That it's, it's not about who's out and who's in. It's not about who's, move, um, who's moving from one realm to the next. It's about who is inching their way closer to Jesus. Who is moving closer to Jesus. And how do we move closer to Jesus, the center? It's when we begin to understand faith as this undeserved gift from God. And that all our striving to believe the right thing and to do the right thing and to be the right person, apart from God's grace and sovereignty, apart from God's authority, are just ways we are trying to earn what can't be earned. We learned from Paul in the first half of Romans that the primary posture of a person of faith is one of surrendering. And that to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, to be transformed into the likeness of Christ means not to cross a boundary or to jump from out to in or to move from sinful to righteous, but literally the word transformed means to turn in the right direction, to turn around, to face Jesus and start moving closer to Jesus. Surrender turn. That is the first half of Romans. And then in the second half of Romans, chapters 12 through 16, Paul moves from this densely theological work to more of a pastorally practical tone. Paul gives the how. How is this faith, this free gift made evident in our lives? How do we know we have faith? What does faith look like lived out Two weeks ago, we talked about how Paul changes the conversation of faith entirely. Faith has always been about right belief meets right action. If you believe all the right things and you do all the right things, you will be saved. But just those, apart from the way of Jesus, the character of Jesus, will set you up for a lived Christian existence that is legalistic and easily thrown aside in the face of trial and evil. The way of Jesus looks like loving until it hurts, giving until it's a sacrifice, humbling ourselves until there is more of God and less of us. Paul seems to say that the merely twofold faith of belief and works is bankrupt. It is fragile. It's dangerous. It's a dangerous faith. The grafted tree that bears 40 fruits is full of branches that don't just look like the tree, but have soaked up the marrow of the trunk. Likewise, a grafted Christian life that bears fruit is one who has soaked up the character, the way of Christ. Today, pastoral and practical Paul continues his how-to lesson in chapter 13. What does it look like to follow the way and live the character of Jesus? Except, did you read it? Did you hear it? This seems to be a long way off from the loving, humble, self-sacrificing, compassionate, bold, Fight for the little guy way of Jesus we've come to know. Take a look at this again with me. Romans um, 13, 1 through 4. Every person should place themselves under the authority of the government. 
There isn't any authority unless it comes from God, and the authorities that are there have been put in place by God. So anyone who opposes the authority is standing against what God has established. People who take this kind of stand will be punished. If we do as Karl Barth suggests and read scripture with the Bible in one hand and the news in the other, this passage should make the hairs on the back of our neck stand up. In one fell swoop, it seems as if Paul has undermined the entire civil rights movement. In one fell swoop, it seems as if Paul has challenged the courage of women's suffrage and LGBTQ advocacy. In one fell swoop, it seems like Paul is condemning the Black Lives Matter movement, the Women's March on Washington, pro-life rallies, the Dakota Pipeline protest, immigrant advocacy in the wake of an executive order, and any form of checks and balances, challenge and cor- correction for the current administration. Paul, what could you possibly be saying? How is this the way of Jesus when we know that Jesus echoed the prophet Isaiah, let justice flow down, let justice roll down like an ever-flowing stream? We know God is sovereign and perfect, but Paul, are you seriously suggesting that the current president, or any president for that matter, have received your divine authority? Paul, into what kind of tree am I being grafted here? About two weeks ago, an image surfaced in the news. It was a picture of the president, along with some of his most trusted advisors, surrounded by a group of pastors, laying hands on the president in the Oval Office and praying for God to give Trump guidance and a supernatural wisdom and protection in the coming days and months and years. Praying for the president is is not something new, right? I mean, images like this have surfaced and been celebrated in every presidential administration. And yet, and yet this one became like a lightning rod as, as the Washington Post describes it. Multiple people responded in the social media sphere to this picture, both positively and negatively. But one particular response kind of shook things up a bit. The Reverend Dr. William Barber, a pastor from North Carolina and the president of the NAACP's North Carolina chapter, called this now viral photo, theological malpractice bordering on heresy. He went on to emphasize a particular play on words, accusing those who pray, P-R-A-Y, for those who pray, P-R-E-Y, on the most vulnerable are being guilty of violating the most sacred principles of religion. What was most offensive to Barber about the photo was the laying on of hands. The laying on of hands in Christian tradition is a sign of deep responsibility and calling and authority. We lay hands on those who are being ordained or commissioned for a particular calling. And for Barber, the more Trump's agenda worked against the least of these in the kingdom of God, the more hollow and blasphemous pastoral prayers for Trump became. And this 
this sparked an outrage in the Christian community. Ideological division in the church is is not new. We know that. When polled, 50% of United Methodists lean left and 50% lean right. Our pews are full of people with various ideological differences, born and raised Republicans, sitting next to born and raised Democrats, sitting next to people who really don't give a care at all. Ideological differences grounded in divergent readings of the same Bible are not new for the church. But the one thing we could always agree on is our common call to prayer. Prayer's never been contested. Prayer has never been challenged. What do we do when we don't agree? We pray. What do we do when everything seems to be falling apart? We pray. What's our response to tragedy across ideological perspectives? Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. What's our response to glory and good fortune across ideological perspectives? Lord, in your goodness, hear our prayer. Whether the church is praying extemporaneously all through the night at some neo-Pentecostal revival or in liturgical call and response, uniting with all the saints in a smells and bells Episcopal cathedral, prayer, not the Bible, has been what has united us as Christians. And then like that, Barber just drops a bomb, pulls the tablecloth from underneath us, conservative Evangelical pastors everywhere lose their shit overnight. Mainline, progressive pastors everywhere spend the next day trying to explain what Barber actually meant. And though Barber was likely making more of a commentary of the content and posturing of the prayers and the people in that picture rather than the actual scope of redemption and whether or not Trump falls under that scope, he did manage to introduce a new set of questions into the tightly locked Christian psyche. Despite what you think about Trump, Barber introduced a set of questions that we didn't even think needed to be asked. Are there some people outside the scope of Christian prayer and therefore God's redemption? Are there some people whose actions great so profoundly against the way of Jesus that to offer up a prayer for them almost seems to pervert that sacred task. Said another way, are there some people who just will not, should not, be grafted in? And can one toxic grafted fruit taint the whole tree? After reading Romans 13, it seems as if Paul would have been right there in the oval. Hands laid on Trump, praying for God's guidance and divine authority and provision for Trump's administration and agenda. In the age of Trump, would Paul have prayed for Trump and forbid all resistance to his authority? In the age of Hitler and I would like to avoid direct comparisons between Trump and Hitler. I I don't find those helpful. But in the age of Hitler, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrestled with this exact same question, with this exact same scripture. 
Bonhoeffer discerned that Romans 13 is not about finding lowercase divinity in figures of authority. It is about the ultimate authority of the uppercase divine. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Let me say that again. Bonhoeffer discerned that Romans 13 is not, it's not about finding some level of lowercase divinity in figures of authority, of, in public figures. It's about the ultimate authority of the uppercase divine. Romans 13 is not about whether or not an authority should be challenged. It is about the unchallengeable authority of God. Bonhoeffer called this the vocation of civil authority, that all authority is in God and from God who does work through just and lawful public officials to enact good, to, pu- to punish wrongdoers, to take care of those in need. Reading Romans 13, Bonhoeffer assessed the vocation of civil authority under Hitler. Did, did God call Hitler to do that? Was he exercising God's authority or violating it? Did he enact good? Did he punish wrongdoers? Did he take care of those in need? What authority did he have? Not God's, since he was obviously violating God's authority. So would, would Paul pray for Trump? Would Paul be the target and chastisement of Reverend Dr. William Barber guilty of violating the most sacred principles of religion? Quite frankly, whether or not he would have prayed for Trump doesn't matter. It's not even the right question. The right question is, does an unchallengeably sovereign God, does an unchallengeably all-powerful God, authoritative God, in the person and faith of Jesus, pray for Trump? And the answer is astoundingly and unapologetically yes. Jesus not only prays for us, but he teaches us how to pray. And you'll notice if you dissect Jesus' prayer, it sounds nothing like the prayer prayed over Trump in the Oval. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, not Trump's name. Your kingdom, not Trump's America, come. Your will, not Trump's agenda, be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, not fame, not riches, not accomplished agenda, not crowd size, not an America made great again, but daily bread, just enough for today. And forgive us our trespasses, the way we have made ourselves little gods over our own lives, have craved the laying on of hands for our own self-value and inflation, just as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, not ours, and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Notice that when Jesus taught us to pray, he didn't leave room for us to name our enemies. There is no moment of silence in the Lord's prayer. He didn't leave room for us to name that person in our lives who makes us sick, who is hard to forgive, who we can't possibly name in prayer. 
He knew there would be times when we couldn't, when our words would be choked up in our throats and sick in our bellies. When Jesus taught us to pray, he didn't ask us to name the powers that be and pray that they might be guided. He knows the powers. He knew we wouldn't be able to do that all the time. He knew that with power comes abuse and that a prayer for God's guidance under an unjust ruler perverts the prayers of the faithful. No, Jesus, in that prayer, taught us to name only one thing the unchallengeable sovereignty of God, God's authority, not Trump's, not ours. That's what that prayer is about here. Here, pray this, Jesus says, surrender, turn, surrender, turn, and surrender and turn again. It doesn't matter whether Paul would pray for Trump. What matters is that no matter how much we buck against reconciliation, no matter how long we Long or short our prayer lists are, no matter how many boundaries we put up, the prayers from the Son to the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit have room for us all. Any apple orchardist would tell you that sometimes, sometimes there are branches that just won't graft. They've been wrapped and bound and held as close to the trunk as they could be And because of moisture or lack of sunlight or many other reasons, they just don't take. They just don't soak up the marrow of the trunk and they die and they wither away. And the orchardist tries again. Over and over again, she tries again. Another fruit, another branch, another wrapping. Hold them close, draw them close, hope they will root and blossom and fruit There are corners inside every one of us, every human where we've been bound so many times and still can't seem to graft to God. We can't seem to take hold. Whether we've been overwhelmed with grief, grief for a loved one or a crushed dream, over relationships lost or a life we thought could have been and we keep binding ourselves over and over and over to the center hoping That something will change, something will take, something will graft. And so we try to believe as firmly as we can believe and do as much as we can do and be as good as we can be. We even pray for our enemies. Check that weekly piety box. When all the while we are a broken branch, barely, barely hanging on by our binding. What does it look like to move closer to the center, to be attached to the vine, to be grafted to the trunk? It's to acknowledge God's unchallengeable sovereignty that makes room for you and grafts all of humanity to the tree of life. It is to acknowledge that faith is merely a fruit of being bound to the one who gives you life. And the good news today and always is that God will not stop wrapping you up and pulling you close. Over and over again, God grafts us to God's self and hopes that maybe, maybe next season, 
we might blossom and bear fruit 